Thank you. That's, uh, I hope that happens every time I come up here to teach. Just get ready. Um, so thank you. Uh, our, my, the new title was announced last week, and I wasn't here last week. We had just come back from the DR really early that Sunday morning, and I was also very sick. So thank you for the encouragement that you've sent out. I'm excited about this new role. I'm excited that you guys are excited, and it's going to be an encouraging time. And also thank you to those of you who prayed while our students were in the DR. Um, it was an interesting week. And I think Ian is teaching next week, and he will probably share more about it. But we had 25 students, five leaders, two trips to the hospital for stitches, four trips to the pharmacy for various pharmaceuticals, a few situations that ended with, just don't tell my mom, and 40 people who came to know the Lord. So the Lord is at work globally, and we got to be a part of it. We got to see it. One of my favorite things that happened on the trip is we got to have a church service with a local church in the Dominican Republic in San Francisco. And um, I just loved how the students recognized the spirit present in the church. And it wasn't surprise like, oh, I guess the spirit is active here too. It was recognition of, oh, this is a familiar this is familiar. This feeling is familiar. So apart from like it, they're worshiping in a different language, the spirit is the same. The family is the same because we're all one body. And that was encouraging to me. So thank you for those of you who prayed. Ask the students about it. There are lots of things they can tell you. Ian will tell you more next week, but it was good. It was a good trip. And so we're going to continue with our summer stories series this morning. And as Eric mentioned, uh, I have my master's in Old Testament, so there's a lot of Old Testament love that I have. And there are a lot of great Old Testament stories. So that is where we're going to be this morning. And I've been excited about this story. We're going to be in 1 Kings 18, and we're talking about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, which is a cool story. One of the things that I love about Elijah is that he has no chill like, that guy is 100% all the time, like, just over it and does what he needs to do, and I love that. But mostly, I love the nature of this story, because we love stories. We live in a society that loves stories. Think about the shows that we binge, because the story is good, and you want to know what happens next, and then you want to know what happens next, and then the season ends, and you're like, why did I even start this when the series isn't over, because now I have to wait a year, and it's awful. No, you get it. I'm not the only one who binges shows, guys. Come on. But I love the nature of story, and I wanted to play that up this morning as we go through this story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So with, as any good story will tell you, we're jumping into the story within a story, a larger story. So we need to have a little bit of a prologue here to, to set us up for what, what we're moving into with 1 Kings. So I've titled this prologue, A Concise History of the Old Testament leading up to 1 Kings. And you may be thinking, uh, there's nothing concise about the Old Testament. Well, get ready. You're going to be surprised. So everyone's going to walk out of here an Old Testament scholar by the time I'm done. It's going to be exciting. So we have to know what's going on by the time we get to 1 Kings. So everything with the Old Testament begins with Abraham. And the Lord calls Abraham in Genesis 12. And he tells him, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to make you a great nation. Your people are going to be a blessing, and they're going to be blessed. The nations will be blessed through you. 
Abraham's like, cool. The problem is there's a little sidetrack with 400 years of slavery. And we see that in Exodus. The Israelites are slaves to the Egyptians for 400 years until the Lord raises up Moses. And through wonderful, powerful, miraculous signs, he leads them out of Egypt, of Egyptian slavery, and tells them, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and I'm bringing you into a good and fruitful land. So, he, so they, they enter into this relationship together, and this is what we see in Exodus and Leviticus. They're setting boundaries for this relationship. That is what the law is. It's dreadfully boring, but it's important because the Lord is saying, this is how we exist together. This is how this is going to work. The problem is, they say, yeah, okay, we're into it, and then they're not into it, and they rebel against the Lord. So for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness until that first generation that was brought out of Egyptian slavery dies off, and then they get to inherit the promised land. Moses, who is Moses, doesn't even get to go into the promised land because of disobedience. That's how serious it is. But before they enter into the promised land, they have, to, they have to renew the covenant, and that's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's Moses renewing the covenant with the people. It's giving the law a second time before they enter into the new land. It's like, okay, this is what it looks like to live in relationship with the Lord. Can you do it? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can. So I need you to put a pin in Deuteronomy because we're coming back to that. It is my, I love Deuteronomy. Anyway, so put it, we're coming back to that. So Moses dies. Joshua, who was Moses' assistant, leads the people into the promised land. This is where we get the book of Joshua and, the book, and leading into the book of Judges. It's people in, finally inheriting the promised land. And everything goes well. They, the people do well while Joshua's leading. But when Joshua dies and Joshua's sons die, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. You do you, I'll do me, we'll be fine. And this is where we get the book of Judges. And Judges is just one cycle after another where the people rebel against the Lord. They're oppressed by a foreign nation. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge to deliver them. They turn to the Lord for a short time, and then they fall back into rebellion. And it's just over and over and over again. And that's Judges. It's literally the book of Judges. There's some good and interesting stories in there. So I would encourage you to read it because it's kind of funny and it's easy to look at their stories and be like, man, you guys are idiots, until you realize, like, oh, maybe I'm an idiot, too. <laughs> so the book of Judges, moving into 1 Samuel. See, we're making our way through the Old Testament. Moving into 1 Samuel, Samuel has kind of a dual role. He's sort of the final judge and the first prophet that comes onto the scene. So when Samuel comes onto the scene, the people are asking for a king. And Samuel says, you don't want a king. All of these things are going to happen if you want a king. They're going to tax you heavily. You're going to be pulled into a workforce. You're not going to like it. You don't want a king. And the people are like, we want a king. So the Lord goes, or Samuel goes to the Lord and says, the people want a king. What do I do? And the Lord says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Go ahead and give them a king. And that's where we get Saul. Saul rises up as the first king of Israel and then David, and then Solomon. So we have roughly 120 years of a united kingdom of Israel. Where it's not bad. A lot of times it's good. But it's a united kingdom. But then there's a problem that's introduced. Remember how, how I told you, I told you to put a pin in Deuteronomy, because we're going to go back there quite a bit. 
because Deuteronomy sets up the rest of the Old Testament, spells out everything in the rest of the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy 7, go ahead and throw this up on the screen. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4, it says very specifically, you shall not intermarry with them, them being foreign nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn, your, turn you away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. The problem is introduced with Solomon who starts out so well and is so wise and just wants wisdom from the Lord. His problem is that he loved a lot of women, hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines. Chances are he didn't see all of these women because a lot of political treaties were made through marriages and alliances and that kind of thing. But he loved a lot of women, and they were foreign women who introduced idolatry into Israel. So Solomon, this great and mighty king who started out so well, introduces this problem that's literally going to tear this kingdom apart. So when Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel, which was one united kingdom, splits into two. You have a southern kingdom called Judah and a northern kingdom called Israel. Politically, they did pretty well. Israel, you see how large it is, the, the territories expand, they're acknowledged by other nations. Spiritually, things are terrible. The kingdom of Judah in the south had 20 kings and one queen regent. Eight of those people followed the Lord. Eight of them. In the northern kingdom of Israel, they had 20 kings before they were taken over by Assyria. 20 kings Zero followed the Lord. It's a huge problem. And that's where our story takes place. In the northern kingdom of Israel. So moving out of the prologue and into chapter 1, we see that Israel, we have a problem. And this problem is introduced in 1 Kings 16, verses 23, 25 through 26. Now, I'm going to warn you, we're moving through a lot of text, but this is a story... And that's the nature of narrative, right? So I trust you and your ability to A, read, or B, follow along. But I believe that it's going to be fine. So 1 Kings 16, 23, it says, In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. And Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So Omri, Omri reigns in Israel. And Omri is actually, from the outside, not a bad king. He expands the territory. He expands the military. Economically, they can compete. They're acknowledged as a legitimate kingdom by Assyria. He is a powerful king. He is a total failure as a spiritual leader. Not only does he reintroduce idolatry into Israel, he perpetuates it. He continues it. So one would think that if Omri is like real, really bad, maybe his son will improve the game when he becomes king. He doesn't. That's a secret. He doesn't. So when Omri dies, Omri's son Ahab becomes king. And this is what it says about Ahab. Chapter 16, 29. 
In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Remember in Deuteronomy 7, it said, Do not intermarry with foreign nations. It will be a snare to you. He does it. He marries Jezebel, who was a Phoenician. And they worshipped the god Baal. Now Jezebel, I think in our current culture, has picked up this person like this idea like Jezebel was a feminist, she was ambitious, she was like a sexually free woman. It's false. Jezebel was a murderer and an idolater and brought destruction to her kingdom. She's not a cool lady. She's, we can just throw that on out. So Ahab is doing more to provoke the Lord to anger than any king who came before him. That's the problem that we're running into as we get into 1 Kings 18. Now, I want you to take a pin out of Deuteronomy, and let's do a brief flashback. So as the people are receiving the law a second time, it's literally spelling out everything that will go before them. Now, in the, in the Bible, there, we use the word covenant a lot which is kind of an odd term, but really it's a, it's a binding agreement. It's a binding vow that are, are made between two parties. And in the Bible, we have two types of covenants. One is an unconditional covenant, and we see that with Noah, when the Lord says, I'm not ever going to flood the earth again. There's nothing that we have to do. It's the Lord saying, I'm taking this on myself. I'm not going to do it. And we have the covenant he makes with Abraham, where he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. All the kingdoms of the earth will be blessed through you. I'm doing that. That's unconditional. And he makes a covenant with David. And he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. It will not have an end. That's the Lord. He's going to do that. And he fulfills that in Jesus. Jesus is the heir of David whose kingdom will have no end. That is an unconditional covenant. There is nothing that will change that. However, with Deuteronomy, with the law with the, the law associated with Moses, that is conditional. That's a, an agreement between two parties that says, if you do this, then I will do this, but you, gotta do your, you have to do your part. So when we see Deuteronomy, you see a bunch of if-then clauses. If you do this, then I will do this. If you do not do this, then these things will happen. And that's why I love Deuteronomy. It spells out the heart of the Lord very clearly and says, I'm going to do great things for you. You got to be faithful to me. And that's the whole book of Deuteronomy. And it says really great things. Um, if you want to throw up Deuteronomy 8, go ahead. Eight, this is verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. 
Deuteronomy 7, because you listen to these rules and keep them, the Lord your God will love you, bless you, and multiply you. Deuteronomy 11, he will give you rain or he will shut up the heavens. Deuteronomy 11, you have the choice between blessing and curse. Deuteronomy 12, do not be ensnared by the gods of other nations. Do not go after them. Do not inquire of them. He says, do not build Asherah poles. Do not build altars to other gods. All of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you because you have forsaken me if you go after these things. This is what Deuteronomy is spelling out. If you do this, it's not going to go well. And finally, it also says, if you continue to do these things, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And that's ultimately what happens. First, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken over by Assyria and just scattered. The broken people. And then the kingdom of Judah is overtaken by Babylon and they're taken out of, they're taken out of their territory. They lose it. Because they cannot be faithful to the Lord. And it is all spelled out right here. And they can't do it. So back to 1 Kings. Deuteronomy gives us the setup for where we are right now. And verse 16, verse 31. Let's go back to that. It says, as if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. As if it was trivial For Ahab to engage in idolatry, he did it more and worse than any king before him. And he built an altar to Baal, and he built an altar to Asherah, and we have a huge problem. So Ahab leads the people astray, marries a foreign woman who loves Baal. Jezebel is Baal's biggest proponent propagates the Baal worship, and actually kills all of the prophets of the Lord. That's what happens before we get to where we are in 1 Kings. She kills all of the prophets of the Lord. The worship of the Lord is on the brink of total collapse in Israel. And that's a problem. But, what would a story be if there was no but to lead us on? And that happens with Elijah, when Elijah comes onto the scene. So Elijah is introduced as a prophet, and the role of a prophet in the Old Testament is that of a mediator between the people and the Lord. They're basically the voice of Deuteronomy, a walking Deuteronomy. You're not upholding your part of this bargain, therefore this is happening. However, if you turn to the Lord and repent, just go back after the Lord, be faithful to the Lord, all of this stuff can change. They're the voice of the Lord to the people, trying to call the people back to remembrance of who the Lord is and what he's done for them. So Elijah is introduced in 1 Kings 17.1. And it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He's introducing a drought. And a drought, we know because of Deuteronomy, is because the people aren't being faithful to the Lord. He tells them, if you're faithful to me, I will send rain. If you forsake me, I'm going to dry up the heavens. And that's what, when you see drought in the Old Testament, there's a problem. That's a clue. People aren't following the Lord. And that's what's happening here. Elijah says there's going to be a drought. And this drought lasts for years. Three years. 
so we get the problem introduced. Now we get to see the solution, because there's always a but in the story. Then we move to chapter 2. Enough is enough. So in chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, verse 1, it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we can find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divide the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah in another direction. And as Obadiah was on his way, behold, Elijah met, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he said, it's, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned? that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of that kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I don't even know where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me although I, your servant, had fear, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, because enough is enough. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, this is really gutsy, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? As though all of Israel's problems are Elijah's fault. But Elijah, because he has no chill, says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. It's a lot of text, but are you tracking? Are you good? Elijah shows up and says, I'm ready to meet with Ahab. Let's see what happens. And Obadiah is scared to death because he loves the Lord, but he also fears Ahab and knows that all of the people, all of the prophets of the Lord have been killed by Jezebel. Elijah's the only one left. But a challenge is made. And this is where we get to the, the meat of the story. This is chapter 3. A challenge is made. Chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. 
Now, when Elijah says limping, when he says, how long will you go limping between two different options? What he's saying is, how long are you going to waver back and forth? It's like being at a fork in the road, and you can't decide which way to go. So you go a little bit this way, but then maybe not, so you go this way. A good English idiom would be, how long will you sit on the fence? How long are you going to be on the fence about this? There's a clear choice between the Lord, Yahweh, God of Israel, and Baal. You got to decide what you want. Because syncretistic worship, the worship of both at the same time, is not possible. It's not acceptable. But more than that, it is not possible. He's actually making the statement, you can't serve two masters. Where do we hear that again? From Jesus in the New Testament. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You can't do it. So he's telling them, you have to decide who you're going to serve. And so they go to Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is in the north of Israel, kind of on the border between Phoenicia and Israel. And close to the Mediterranean Sea. It was a high place. It was revered by both sides. People who loved the Lord and people who loved Baal. They loved building altars in high places because it made them feel closer to the gods. So this is where they're gathering, right next to the Mediterranean Sea, and this is where the showdown is going to happen. So let's move on. Chapter 18, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, okay. So this is a clear contest, a test of God-sent fire. And it allows, it allows people to do their own thing. Because if Elijah said, let me build your altar, let me cho choose your bull, people could contest that there's fraud involved. So Elijah's like, you know what? You build your own altar. You choose your own bull. I'm going to do my own thing. And we'll see the God who answers by fire. That is God. And the people want a clear sign. Like, people live for clear signs. And so they think, like, okay. If we see a sign from Baal, then surely he is God. If we see a sign from the Lord, then he is God. We can do that. That's fine. So we have two contenders. In one corner, we have Baal. If you want to throw up that, in, that image. Baal is, was seen as this young storm god so associated with fertility and rain and dew. So just life. He was like bringing life. He was the king of gods because he fought other gods and seized this position. Storm gods were often thought of as vigorous warriors and revered for their ability to bring the storm, to bring the rain, because they had fought for it. And Asherah was his consort. So when we're, we were reading about Ahab, how Ahab built an altar to Baal, it also mentioned he built a pole to Asherah, who was a goddess of fertility, and that kind of stuff. So they were often seen together because ancient Near Eastern gods had human characteristics and could engage in marriage and adultery and um, all kinds of things. Like, if you can do it, they could do it too. And that's, that was the nature of gods in the ancient Near East. And Baal is feared for his destructive power 
because of the storm. And so fire in the ancient Near East was also associated with destruction. Kings would send fire ahead of them to burn down, if they, or if they overtook a city, they would burn it to the ground and just build on top of it. Fire was always seen as a sign of destruction. And that's Baal. And then in the other corner, we have Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who has no image, who controls the storm, creation submits to his will. He never seized his power from anyone or anything. He's always had it. In Psalm 29, it talks about how the voice of the Lord goes out and the mountains shake and the cedars break. The voice of the Lord, just his voice, controls the response of creation. And fire, instead of being a sign of destruction for the Lord, is a sign of his presence. He shows up in the burning bush to Moses. He leads the people of Israel by a pillar of fire. It is a sign of his presence that he is, that he is with them. And fire is strategic in this challenge then. Because if Baal is so great, if he can do so much, then let him answer by fire. But if the Lord is real and the Lord can hear us and see us, then let him show up in fire. They're asking these gods to show themselves. And so fire, which whoever, whoever, whichever sacrifice gets accepted, that's how they know, okay, this is it. We're going to go this way. There's no more indecision. We, we've seen who is God. And without a specific sign, no side could claim victory. So they need that fire to show up. So we move into the challenge. And this moves us into chapter 4 of our story. Who is God? And this continues in 1 Kings 18.25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, saying Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So I want to step back for a second to the book of Joshua. Keep this picture in mind. But at the end of Joshua, as they're inheriting the promised land, as they have, the people of Israel have seen the faithfulness of the Lord over and over and over again, Joshua issues them a challenge. And he says, if it is evil to you to follow the Lord, then follow another God. If it is good to you to follow the Lord, then follow the Lord and be faithful to him. But you have to decide today who, who it is you're going to serve. And that's where we get that great line where he says, but as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. And all the people on that day say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. 
this is their history. As we come back to 1 Kings, these are Israelites, the chosen people of God, the people of God who have forgotten their history, making a fool of themselves, dancing wildly, limping around, cutting themselves, making desperate pleas to a statue that cannot see them and cannot hear them and can't do anything about it. They're trying to incite action from another God who can't do anything. And Elijah is watching this happen. The Lord is watching this happen. Can you imagine what the Lord is feeling? After all the things he's done, after all the ways he's displayed his power and his faithfulness, to see them behaving so wildly and irrationally for a statue, it would break your heart. It would be devastating. But as I said, Elijah has no chill and is over it. He's over it. It is dangerous for him to be, to be on Mount Carmel. He is the last of the prophets, and he is totally fed up because he sees what they are doing, and he knows that it's wrong, and he knows what the Lord can do. And he actually mocks them. He makes fun of them. He taunts them. Where is your God? Because Baal has human actions, and this is acceptable for Canaanite gods. So for the prophets, when, he's, when Elijah's making fun of them, but for them, they could be legitimate things. Maybe he is going to the bathroom. Maybe he is on a journey with somebody else, and we just need to call a little bit louder and make a little bit more of a spectacle of ourselves to get his attention. Maybe he's asleep. These are all actions and things made from human likeness, but the Lord is not made in our image. We are made in his and that's the difference here. And they don't know it. Psalm 21 tells us that the Lord doesn't sleep. He doesn't grow. We don't have to get his attention. He's not busy doing other things. He's present and active and aware of what's going on in our lives. And they don't know it. They don't know it. But they're about to. So chapter 18, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah's actions here are underscoring the significance of this test. First, he puts 12 stones around the altar, 12 stones representing the true united Israel, the true people of God. And he digs a trench around the altar. And so if it's roughly, like the whole space is roughly 300 meters, to give you a picture, there would be an altar in the middle and then a big trench dug around it. So we'll think of a tennis court. It'd be a little bit larger than a tennis court. That's the total surface area that all of this is taking up. It's a large area. And he tells them to dump water on it. Four huge vases of water, dump some water on it. And then he tells them to do it again. 
And then he tells them to do it again. So much so that water is running off of the altar and filling the trenches. Elijah is under intense and close observation. He's loading the dice against himself. First, to prevent fraud. Second, to prevent that when the Lord shows up, there's no question. Do you guys know (laughs) what happens when you try to light wood that is wet? Nothing happens. There's nothing more sad than watching someone try to light damp wood. Have you ever watched those? This is a side note. But have you ever watched those reality shows like The Survivor Man or Bear Grylls? They're trying to light. It's always raining on them, and they're trying to light damp wood, and they end up sitting in the rain all night, and there's nothing more pathetic than that. And I think this is why I don't go into the wilderness. (laughs) But when you light damp wood, it doesn't work. It doesn't catch on fire. That's just science. And Elijah's saying, dump more water on it. Put more water on it. There is no question that when the Lord shows up, it's not the, that it's the Lord. There is no doubt. So ver, chapter 18, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What is he asking for? He's asking for a demonstration that the Lord is God and that the people will will return to him. There's no extravagant display. There's no extra thing. It's a simple prayer. Lord of our fathers, show up and let these people see you and return to you. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. He consumes it all. Every last drop, there is no question. Who can stop the Lord? Nothing. Verse 39, let's keep going. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This seems a little harsh, I know. Uh, But the slaughter of these prophets is not revenge, it's fulfilling the law. Like I said, everything goes back to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, the Lord talks about false prophets and dreamers rising up and leading the people astray. And it says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he taught rebellion against the Lord your God. It is no joke to lead people astray. And the Lord takes it very seriously. 
And that's what we're seeing with the prophets. These prophets of Baal have been responsible for leading an entire nation away from the Lord. And this is the consequence of it. You've got to get rid of it. And that's what happens. But more than that, the challenge, this whole story is summed up in verse 39. When the people see it and respond, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. That is the end goal. That was the point of all of this, of the drought, of coming and doing this challenge, of sending fire from heaven. All of that is so that the people will see and say, the Lord is God, and know it, and return to him. That's what Elijah was praying for. If, there, if we get playbacks in heaven, this is one of the playbacks I want to see. I want to see that altar consumed. That's cool. But that's the goal, that the Lord is God. And that's what happens with the story. So as with every good story, there's an epilogue, because you want to know what happens. And sometimes I read the epilogue first. (laughs) I'm just that kind of person. I don't like the anxiety of wanting to know what happens to people. I'll know, and then I'll go back and read the story. It's cheating, I know. It's fine. So as a result, from this challenge, from this story, The Lord sends rain, a lot of rain. We see that in 18. And in chapter 19, the Lord builds up Elijah, who is discouraged and broken down. He's been the only prophet for a long time, and he's worn out. And in chapter 19, we get that really beautiful story where the Lord shows up in a still small voice and builds up Elijah. And then Elijah gets to call Elisha, another no-nonsense prophet because they're rebuilding the prophetical voice in Israel. And we see the end of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab dies in battle. Jezebel gets thrown from a window and is eaten by dogs. It's not not a glamorous ending, but it's how it happened. And that's that's how that story wraps itself up. But so what? So what? It's a nice story, but what is the point? I chose this story because I love this story. And I love this story because the, the Lord shows up. He just shows up. I love this story because Elijah, for Elijah, there is no plan B. There is no other option. The Lord is his option. And in spite of danger to himself and his own life being at risk, all of his eggs are in that basket of the Lord showing up and doing the things that only he can do. I love this story because it makes the statement, you cannot serve two gods. You can't. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. And you can't go back and forth. The point of this story is simple. The Lord is God. That's the point. But I have a couple of questions for you. After sitting through the story, after hearing these things, I have a couple of questions. Number one, is the Lord your God? It's a simple question. Hopefully it's a simple answer. Is the Lord your God, or are you serving two masters? It may not be a physical idol. We don't have a lot of those nowadays. Some, but not a lot. It doesn't have to be a physical idol, but are you serving God and something else? It could be God and money, or God and my job, 
or God and this relationship that I have that is super important and dictates everything that I do. Or God and alcohol or God and sex or God and your schedule. Do you know how many people are slaves to their schedule? I'm a, I'm a fan of order and regiment. But do you know how many people let their schedule dictate their life? And they're slaves to it. Is the Lord your God or are you limping between two masters? Because you can't decide the Lord is good, but this is important to me. 1 Kings 18, 29. When the prophets of Baal are literally pouring themselves out, cutting themselves, bleeding, desperately crying out for Baal to answer, it says very simply, there was no voice. There is no answer. No one paid attention. So when you serve God and something else, that something else is only going to get you so far because there is no voice. It does not see you. It does not hear you. It does not experience life with you. It's just a peripheral of your life that you may benefit from occasionally. Do you ever hear people talk about the universe? I feel like we're hearing that more and more. Like, oh, maybe the universe will send... Send me something. Like, God is cool, but, like, there's energy in the universe. The universe does not care about you. I just want to let you know. The universe is matter and can't do anything for you. But the Lord, who exists outside of space, outside of time, who is the beginning and the end, who has no end, sees you and knows you and hears you. And wants to be God of your life. But you get to decide. So maybe it's time to get off the fence. There is no one and nothing that can do what the Lord can do. We just sang about it. You have no rival. You have no equal. If we can say those things, maybe we can believe those things and live like those things are true. Wouldn't that be awesome? That the Lord is God and he has no rival. And no one can do the things that he can do. We call this series Summer Stories, but we literally have an entire book of stories that show things that only the Lord can do, how faithful he is, how true he is, how powerful he is. An entire book of stories of what God has done and what God can do. So is the Lord your God? Do you need to return to him? Do you need to make a decision to get off the fence and follow him. I love Elijah's prayer. It's not drawn out. It's not extra. He just says, Lord, can you show up? And can these people return to you? It doesn't have to be a long and drawn out thing. It could be as simple as saying, Lord, you are God of my life. Help me follow you and you alone. Is the Lord your God? Second question. If you say that the Lord is God... Do you trust him to show up in your life? And this um, is actually, <laughs> uh, we've reached the part of the story where I have to talk about myself. <laughs> um, this, is part, this is difficult for me, and I would never have thought that until I was preparing for this message. I, the first time I ever had an opportunity to preach, I was 17. And it was in high school, and I was able to do it for a high school convocation. And it was cool. The Lord showed up in really cool ways, and it was awesome. I got to do it again my senior year. 
And I was, as I was preparing for it, I had nothing to share. I had nothing. Nothing was coming together. Nothing made sense. Um, I was a basket of weeping and nerves. And uh, about three days before the convocation, when I should probably have something in mind to say, a friend of mine was talking to me, not even a believer, and I was telling her what was going on. And she was like, maybe you're not supposed to have anything. Maybe you're supposed to just, like, get up there and say nothing. Um, but I, as soon as she said that, I was like, well, maybe, maybe. So I went to the teacher who was sort of over the whole convocation, and I said, look, I believe that the Lord has something in store. I don't know what that is. I have nothing prepared, but I'm trusting that God is going to show up. And she was like, cool. I believe that the Lord will show up also. So literally, until the moment that I walked up on that stage, I did not know what I was going to say. And the moment I opened my mouth, the Lord took over, and it was cool. And I honestly don't even remember very much of it because it was all the Lord. But since then, I mean, totally different experiences. The Lord showed up both times. But since then, I get this weird anxiety about teaching. Just teaching. I know that the Lord shows up in my life. The Lord has shown up in my life in ridiculous ways for years. How I ended up here at Eagle, the time that I've spent here at Eagle, the things that have happened since I've been here at Eagle, it's all the Lord being faithful and good. But when it comes to teaching, I am always like, what if this is the time that the Lord doesn't show up? As if he wouldn't show up. And part of that is uh, like, I don't want to do this without you, Lord. Can you please be with me? But the other part of it is, is like, what if you decide to like check out and you're not part of this anymore and I'm up here looking like a fool without you? And that's a trust issue that I did not realize I had until I was preparing for this message. And I was like, holy buckets. Am I like, uh, do I need to repent of this? And the Lord very clearly, very clearly said, when have I not shown up for you? When have I not been faithful to you? I have always shown up in your life. I'm going to keep showing up in your life. And I had to deal with that with him and get rid of that anxiety, that fear that he was going to bail on me. He doesn't bail the Lord doesn't bail. He always shows up. So I'm asking you, like, do you compartmentalize your life? Like, I trust the Lord here. I trust the Lord here. I trust the Lord here. But I got to have a plan B here. Because what if? What if he doesn't show up? And you know what? It may not look, when he shows up, it may not look the way you expect it to. It may not be the way he's shown up in the past. It may not be in the timing you expect, but does it matter? Do you trust that he's going to show up outside of your expectations? Are all of your eggs in that basket? Because I want to be like Elijah. I don't care if I'm in danger. I don't care if I'm risking everything. All of my eggs are here in this basket, and the Lord is going to show up. So that's the question. Do you trust him? Is he Lord of your life? Worship team, if you guys want to come back up.
I think when we think about the Lord, it's easy to put him in the peripheral. Like there's life, and then the Lord is like outside. I like him. I'm glad he's there. But I'm telling you, it should be the Lord, and everything else falls underneath that. Because he's God of everything. So is he God of your life? The cool thing about this, about all of this, is that the God who makes himself known by fire is the God who is here today. Who's here now, active and present in our lives. The Lord who is God of creation, everything answers to him. Everything that has ever been made was made through him and for him is the God whose spirit and presence is here in this room in this place, and he's the one that invites us in. It says, come be with me. Let me be your God. Be my people. I will show up for you. The God who never sleeps, who does not grow weary, will show up in your life. He will. We've seen it, and you've seen it, and I've seen it, and we'll keep seeing it because he's good, and he's constant, and he's there. So trust that. Choose him. Follow him. Love him. Trust him. And believe that he's going to show up in your life. The song that we're about to sing that they're going to lead us through, um, The Lion and the Lamb, is, I really love this song, but it asks the question, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord? And the answer is nothing. And we get to be part of that. He gets to be our God. So my challenge to you is trust that. You guys want to stand up again? Can I pray before we sing? Thank you. Lord, we're so grateful for who you are, for your steadfastness, for your love, for your compassion on us, for the fact that you come back, that you come after us and after us and after us, regardless of what we do. There is no end to your love. There is no end to your drive. There is no end to what you can do. Lord, help us to see who you are in every circumstance of our life. We ask that you would show up and all of our individual hearts and the things that we're working through and the things that we're dealing with, we lift to you. We lift them up to you and we say, show up. And we're grateful for the things that you will do because of our faith in you, because of who you are, and because of your great name. It's in your awesome name we pray.